Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. What do we mean in Britain when we talk about traditional working class regions? It's a concept that's often turned up in political commentary, particularly in debates after Brexit. Within England, those supposed bastions of working class traditionalism were thought to be concentrated in the North, especially outside the big cities. Areas like the so-called red wall seats lost by Labour to the Conservatives in 2019 areas that in the 2016 Brexit referendum tended to vote to leave. These are what we might call ordinary working class places, a phrase that rests upon an often unexamined set of assumptions about the politics and social attitudes of working class people. Today, we're going to hear some stories that question and even upend those assumptions. This is the third episode in a three-part series on rethinking British labor history after Brexit. The first two episodes were devoted to race and to gender, and if you've not yet heard them, please do go back and listen. In today's segment, we'll hear from three scholars, all based at the University of Glasgow, Valerie Wright, Ewan Gibbs, and Dermot Kelleher. Over the past few years, all three have interviewed ex-industrial workers as part of oral history projects focused on what might be considered traditional working-class communities, areas that were dominated by heavy industries employing primarily white male workers and that were subject to massive disruptions in the second half of the 20th century. Yet the stories they tell about those communities are distinctly at odds with common assumptions about class and region, about schisms and solidarities. What they suggest is just how complex and tangled questions of class identity can be. We start with Fairfield Shipyard on the Clyde. In the summer of 1971, faced with the threat of redundancy, workers at Upper Clyde Shipbuilders staged what became a legendary work-in. Over several months, some 13,000 Clyde Bank shipyard workers occupied yards that were slated for closure and continued to turn out ships, an act of defiance that was supported by workers not only in Scotland, but throughout the UK and across the world. The Fairfield work-in of 1971 was a landmark moment of working-class solidarity. But what happened to those workers in the years that followed? Back in 2017, the historian Valerie Wright began gathering testimonies from Scottish workers about their experiences of deindustrialization. And while she interviewed ex-industrial workers across Scotland, she had a unique window onto what happened to workers at Fairfields. Her father, Alec, worked at the yard. So in the late 1970s, my dad was a member of the Wembley Club in our hometown. He and a big group of guys his age would meet regularly and make their contributions towards their annual trip to London to see Scotland play in England. Um, this was when this match was still an annual fixture. At the same time, my dad has always been the sort of Scot who, when Scotland was knocked out of a big international tournament or didn't qualify, would then support England. Why? Because he's a lifelong believer in the solidarity and similarities of workers across the UK. Throughout his working life, he was a member of a trade union. 
For him, class kind of trumps nation, but it's also more complicated than that. In terms of identity, he sees himself as both Scottish and British. So while his personal political views may have become sort of less left-wing over time, and that's something we discuss a fair bit, for him, these two identities remain entirely compatible. Not everyone in Scotland felt like that in the 1970s, or indeed feels like that today. It's obvious that class identity can be complicated by regional and national identity. So my dad, Alec, began working as an apprentice welder at Fairfield Shipyard in the Clyde in 1971, when he was 15 years old. And from the outset, his experience was shaped by industrial action. In early 1971, the then Conservative government refused Upper Clyde Shipbuilders' requests for credit guarantees, despite a healthy order book, which pushed the firm into liquidation in June of that year. So a joint committee of trade union shop stewards and all the yards on the Clyde led the workers in a campaign to defend their jobs by not only occupying the yards, but by continuing to work producing ships. So the year-long working, as it has famously become known, proved that shipbuilding in the Clyde was viable. So what my dad learned in those early years was the value of solidarity. The shipyards were not an easy place to work. There was a code of respectable conduct and all apprentices had to prove themselves to their fellow workers in terms of their skills and capabilities. And it could be a dangerous job. They were welding inside of tanks or they were in scaffolding on the side of ships. But young workers didn't just learn their trade. They also learned about politics and formed their own opinions and debate with their fellow workers, young and old. So union meetings in particular were a space in which they could make their voices heard. So what he observed was that solidarity brought success. In September of 1977, shipbuilding was nationalised, creating British shipbuilders. On the Clyde, this is popularly attributed to the success of the work-in. And the lesson was clear. Solidarity had not only saved the yards, but also ensured the future of the industry. So it was all the more surprising two months later when Alec attended a union meeting at which a dispute at Swan Hunter over the border in Tyneside was being discussed and more importantly, how this could impact work at Fairfields. The Labour government had secured a contract with the Polish government for the construction and delivery of a fleet of 24 military vessels worth £110 million. Fairfields was contracted to supply 10 of these, Swan Hunter was committed to seven, and the rest were shared between the remaining yards and British shipbuilders. Outfitting workers in Swan Hunter had enforced an overtime ban for increased pay to reach parity with the other UK yards, so the whole order was therefore threatened with disruption. The solution proposed by management was to transfer four of Swan Hunter's ships to Fairfields. So my dad recounts how the shop stewards presented this proposal to the workers. We were being told, because it was a multi-yard order, that since they went on strike, the two vessels they were contracted to build should they were wanting the British, the, the, the ship owners was wanting those ships transferred to Glasgow. Wow. And this was a very heated debate. Yeah. There were people that, their fellow union members in the same union as, we shouldn't be taking those ships off them. And I remember the convener at the time, who was a convener at the time of the working, probably the second man in charge there, uh, says, we're taking these ships. So it's worth explaining again what's going on here, what you're listening to, what's, what's really at stake here. Outfitting workers at Swan Hunters had enforced an overtime ban, which my dad remembers as a strike. The protest was that their wages weren't in line with other workers in their trade. 
So workers at Fairfields were being asked to agree to take this work from Swan Hunter and complete the construction of the ships at Fairfields. This just doesn't sit well with my dad, given the lessons he'd learned about solidarity working in the yard. These were workers like ourselves, in his words, men who were our fellow union members. Now, with the passage of time, he misremembers uh, these guys being boilermakers rather than outfitting workers. But arguably the principle remains for Fairfields to be taking those ships off them, away from Swan Hunter, smacked of a betrayal to him. And what at the time seemed most shocking of all for my dad, that proposal was being put to the meeting by one particularly well-respected Fairfields trade union leader, someone known for his militancy. When you build them, it'll give us extra work. And he was a CP member, he was a Communist Party member. He I, think said, I, I think I know who you mean. Yeah. We'll not, we'll not yeah. name names, yeah. no, but we'll I not think I know who you mean. He says, if they're not there's a danger of losing the vessels to someone out with British shipbuilders. We have the capacity to do those vessels and it could even be advantageous to us for recruiting staff and for extra hours. Wow. And we took those vessels Did and that you? hit the news. Hit the news positively. And uh, north of the border. But you you were, know, the BBC were, Scotland and such like was oh the gun yard. They were, that was very positive how unions were changing in some respect. But you uh, were essentially breaking a strike. We were, we were virtually breaking a strike. I've got to say at the convener gave certain ultimatums to the workers downside saying, look, you're going to put us in a position we cannot. You're going to have them make us an offer we can't refuse. The man whose name we're refraining from mentioning was Jimmy Early. He was, as my dad notes, a member of the Communist Party. He was also one of the heroes of the 1971 work-in, who famously travelled to London by train with a large Upper Clyde shipbuilders delegation and who, along with the other shop stewards, held crisis talks with the Prime Minister Ted Heath at 10 Downing Street. What Early was essentially saying was that loyalty to Fairfields came before solidarity with the workers in the nationalised industry. So you can tell that I'm surprised here in this extract. The fact that I'm so quick to say we won't mention names, such was and is the admiration for the leaders of the work in, that it must have felt blasphemous to subject them to criticism. The rhetoric of the 1971 work in had carefully appealed to both class and national interests. Saving shipbuilding in the Clyde wasn't just about protecting working class jobs and the economic future of Glasgow and the Clydeside region. The work in was framed as central to the future of Scotland as a nation. In doing so, the leaders won the support not only of the wider trade union movement, but also popular support across the political spectrum in Scotland. So perhaps Early's advocacy of taking the ships is not as surprising as it would have first seemed to me during the interview. Certainly, at the time, the proposal won praise from the Scottish press, which pointed to the union's support for that action as evidence of the militant Clydesiders being more responsible and bringing more work to the area. But the fact that Early was proposing undermining industrial action in another yard did not go unchallenged at the meeting at Fairfields. My dad remembers that Early had given the workers at Swan Hunter an ultimatum that if their action continued, the Fairfields shipyard would have to take the work to ensure that an entire contract to the Polish government would be delivered. So unsurprisingly, this meeting becomes very heated. 
Uh-huh. Where people actually get up to the front, decrying the convener, saying that this is it. They, they are fellow boilermakers and fellow union members and all that. We shouldn't be accepting these ships. Yeah. So it was a very split meeting. I think it could have been the meeting, I think they split the hall, that they couldn't tell where show of hands. Wow. And they literally split the hall where if you wanted to vote for it, you went left, and if you wanted to vote against it, you went right. Wow. And even as we moved, we couldn't tell who was winning this. Wow. And the stewards had to actually, see when the stewards were, and they were guilty of this, show hands, Lance, and they put hands up, and whether no matter how tight it was, Washing carried, <laughs> and you they couldn't get away with doing that this time because there was so much they, the tension. The tension. They literally had to try and keep the roads, guys, and try and keep the roads, and they started trying to count us. The result of that chaotic vote was that the motion was carried. Fairfields took the ships, so although my dad could see both sides of the argument. Um, he was surprised. He remembers that he felt for the guys down in Newcastle. There were men just like him trying to raise their families and wages not in line with inflation, who had a right to complain about both their earnings and their working conditions. But my dad's feelings weren't shared by everyone. For some, the survival of their workplace came before class solidarity with workers elsewhere in the UK. And this was a sentiment that I heard quite a lot when interviewing ex-industrial workers in Scotland in 2017 and 2018. Often this was underpinned by a sense of regional resentment, a conviction that workplaces based in England were accorded preferential treatment. One former welder told me that if there's two jam factories, there's one in Dundee and there's one down in Birmingham, it's the Dundee one that will shut. Similarly, a former worker at Linwood Car Factory suggested that there would have been quiet celebrations in the firm's Coventry factory when Linwood was closed. So I was conducting those interviews three years after the independence referendum in Scotland when spaces both physical and virtual became increasingly polarised. So both of the men I've just quoted are supporters of Scottish independence. Meanwhile, my dad was more conflicted in 2014 how to vote. I was raised believing that we had more in common with the working classes in Newcastle, Liverpool or Cardiff or London than the ruling classes in Scotland. He had a very difficult time during the independence referendum in sort of abandoning the working classes in England by voting yes. So until I interviewed my dad in 2017, I'd actually never heard that story of the vote at Fairfields overtaking the Swan Hunter ships. In fact, I hadn't really even set out to include my dad in the oral histories. I interviewed him more as a practice. He was, he was the first person I interviewed when I started in the project. But I think it's no accident that that story came out in that moment. Even as in you know in the eighties and nineties, nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, it was perfectly possible for a Scot to support devolution while advocating solidarity with workers elsewhere in the UK. My dad voted for a Scottish Parliament in nineteen ninety-seven. But by two thousand seventeen the debates around independence and also Brexit had deepened the sense of fracture and contradiction. That's what I heard in my dad's recollections, just as I'd heard it in the written up to the independent referendum as I witnessed countless friends and colleagues having similar arguments over class solidarity versus a hope of a better, more egalitarian future for Scotland as an independent nation. I wonder if my dad would reflect differently in that episode in the history of Fairfield Shipyard if I were to interview him today, five and a bit years on. I'm not sure, but I know that we've started discussing independence again in the context of the ongoing controversy over whether or not there'll be another referendum. Many of his friends, and also mine, who were yes voters in 2014, are still yes now. 
Crucially, some no voters would now vote yes. A lot of no voters will still be no. Yet in the context of the cost of living crisis and high-profile trade union activism with strikes in a range of sectors, the importance of solidarity has never been more apparent, so loyalties remain contested. But as I've shown, these tensions are not new. Workers in Scotland in the 1970s and since have had a difficult time in a period of growing political divergence in Scotland and reconciling their class identities as members of UK-based trade unions, while simultaneously voicing competitive regional and our national identities, which somewhat undermine that solidarity. It's important to point out that this political divergence predated 1979 and the election of a Conservative government. The increasing demands for devolution in the 1970s were a response to and also reinforced regional and national distinctions. Obviously, individual trajectories, thoughts, opinions and voting intentions are difficult to generalise, but I think such nuance is important in understanding the operation of class solidarity, which was and remains contingent, especially in our current political circumstances. One thing that's striking about Valerie's story is what it suggests about the politics of memory. As she explained it, she first heard her father's story about the fractious vote on Fairfield workers taking Tyneside workers' ships four decades after it happened, in 2017, when long-standing tensions around contending loyalties to class and to region had been exacerbated by debates around Scottish independence and Brexit. So what did other Scottish workers experience? How did they understand loyalties to class and to region? And how did they look back on their experience in decades to come? Back in 2016, Ewan Gibbs, a historian of Scottish labour, got an unusual vantage point on these questions when he joined the commemorative project led by veterans of a pivotal industrial dispute. 30 years earlier, in 1987, workers at the Caterpillar factory near Glasgow occupied the plant for 103 days to protest its threatened closure. On the face of it, their struggle wasn't wholly successful within the year the plant had closed, but they gained support across Scotland and ultimately did win some concessions. And it was that spirit of dogged defiance in the face of a corporate giant that the legacy group set out to commemorate. In 2016 and 2017, Ewan worked with the Legacy Project, conducting interviews with those involved in the occupation. What struck him most was their conviction that this story mattered not just as the story of one Scottish workplace dispute, but for the lessons it offered for workers now, both trade union stalwarts and younger workers facing a precarious laboring future. So what exactly were those lessons? What happened at Caterpillar and what can we learn from it? Ewan begins his story by taking us back to the moment when the occupation began. On the 14th of January, 1987, in a makeshift restroom at the Hospitality Inn in Glasgow City Centre, the American manager of the Caterpillar Tractor Factory in nearby Eddingston, Ken Robinson, was speaking to the press to announce the factory's surprise closure. For everyone local, perhaps everyone in Scotland, this announcement would come as a shock. Only four months earlier, corporate publicity had labelled the factory Plant with a future, leading Malcolm Rifkind, Margaret Thatcher's Secretary of State for Scotland, 
to climb atop a bulldozer and panic side and declare that Caterpillar was the way forward for Scottish industry. Now its doors were to close, leaving some 1,200 workers adrift in an area that was already dealing with very high levels of joblessness. But as Robinson blustered his way through his pre-prepared statement, he was interrupted by a large man in a flat cap who stepped forward from the back of the room. John Brandon was the convener of the Amalgamated Engineering Union, which was the largest union at Caterpillar. He spoke of the authority born from decades of organising on the shop floor. Caterpillar's workforce, Brandon declared, would not give in without a fight. He went on to state that, we are now occupying the plant at Uddingston until you have with this decision withdrawn. I interviewed John during 2016 and 2017, when he was once again standing at the head of the Caterpillar workforce. To mark the occupation's 30th anniversary, the Caterpillar Workers Legacy Group was established by former union activists in the factory. The Legacy Group held reunion events in Lanarkshire and put on exhibitions locally. They also made and showed a commemorative film and hosted a play. The occupation was given official political recognition through a commemorative debate at Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament, on the 17th of January 2017. This underlined the national significance of Caterpillar, and it also confirmed the enduring appeal that the story of Scottish workers defying a corporate jive retained 30 years later. I assisted the Legacy Group by recording oral history interviews, including at reunion events, and they in turn participated in an event titled Trade Unionism, Past, Present and Future, which I was involved with organising at the University of the West of Scotland, where I then worked. At this event, intergenerational dialogue took place between the Legacy Group and younger trade unionists who have been organising hospitality service workers with the Better Than Zero campaign. After this, I worked with my University West of Scotland colleagues Susan Henderson-Bone and Victoria Bianchi to take the story of the occupation and members of the Legacy Group into a local secondary school classroom. This realised a key goal of the Legacy Group, and it helped 11 and 12-year-olds to engage with a story of economic injustice in the hands of a huge multinational as well as to establish connections between familiar places and industrial heritage. When he spoke at a Scottish Parliament reception following the debate at Holyrood in 2017, John Brannan was adamant that although the occupation ended after 103 days, with the workforce reluctantly accepting the factory's closure on improved redundancy terms, it wasn't a failure. Instead, Brannan said it was a success for working-class people who refused to do nothing. I was drawn to the Caterpillar story as a scholar of labour history because of the length of the dispute and the extent of the support it garnered, as well as its place in time coming two years after the minor strike had ended in grave defeat and just months before a calamitous result for the Conservative Party at the 1987 general election in Scotland. But what drew me to Caterpillar most was the legacy group's activities and the importance that they felt the story had for understanding not just Scotland's recent past, but also the potential that their actions offer trade unionists and young people in precarious labour markets. What made the proposed closure of the Caterpillar factory so shocking 
was the plant status as a harbinger of a new kind of economic modernity. The factory was built in the late 1950s, I thought the remains of an old mining village, so quite literally, Caterpillar rose from the ashes of Scotland's industrial past. This was part of an agenda that was followed by policymakers in the Scottish office under both Labour and Conservative UK governments between the 1940s and 1970s. Investment by American corporations rather than local business then was part of a vision of Scotland's new, improved industrial future. During the 1920s and 30s, unemployment had exceeded 50% for men in some coal mining settlements on Clydeside. Caterpillar were understood as part of the solution to making sure that these terrible circumstances were never repeated. Where Scottish industrialists had failed, it was held, American corporations would bring mass production, higher wages and securer jobs. During the 1950s and 60s, trade union leaders supported these changes, which they saw as strengthening the foundation of Scotland's industrial economy. Employment in Caterpillar was worth fighting to save because it compared so favourably with prior experience of industrial jobs. John Brandon was a miner's son from Dew Park, not far from the plant in Tannock Side. During an interview in 2017, he explained his motivations for moving from his job at the Parkhead Wireworks at the east end of Glasgow to the new opportunities that the Caterpillar factory offered him when he was 18 years old in the mid-1960s. Primarily, this related to the significantly higher wages that were on offer. Is it that you want to say about the Caterpillar? No, twenty-six pound at the tap. But the job offer I got the car bar was forty pound. Uh, but you would say fifty, fifty pence a day. No, uh, well, what did they call it? Ten ball, forty, forty pound. Uh, and that was my pay. So the difference in the two days was just huge. And when I went to Uncle Will, uh, I booked this. I was, uh, and she just says, "Fine." The big money still the same on you go, and that was me. I was, I was one of the, the millionaires. I do back, you know. I, mean, I posted them in maybe six or eight pound pocket money. I had 14 quid pocket money, so yeah, yeah, I was a king for a day. So, as we can understand from John's testimony, these experiences of material improvements, better living standards, and hopes for the future resonated powerfully in Tannic Side. John Slavin's mother and father had relocated the nearby Workingshaw in order to live in publicly owned houses that were built for the Caterpillar workers so that John Slavin's father could take a job at the factory before John himself was born in the 1960s. John's mother also worked in payroll at the plant and was among the occupiers. He explained that making tractors in a large clean factory was far preferable to working in the ageing, dangerous coal mines that Caterpillar replaced. You, you have to understand the kind of physical environment the Caterpillar. There's a big shiny new factory. It looked modern. The front of it looked modern. It looked American. Uh, so, you know, and the way 
these brilliant characters that were sold all over the world. Why would yeah. why would they go? They weren't making, you know, you weren't doing an old decrepit pit that seam was running out. You were in this big modern factory that uh, computer designed pay systems that were making big yellow tractors that everybody knew about. Um, you know, they could pay high wages. Why would that ever go? The improvements that John Slavin described were hard fought for. Caterpillar's bitterly anti-union American management were forced to collectively bargain with their Scottish workers after a bitter strike during the winter of 1960-61. John Brannan became involved in union activism when he voiced objections over the organisation of overtime rotas in order to obtain a fairer distribution of opportunities to earn higher wages. He rose through the ranks of the union with others who joined the factory as young men around the same time as he had in the mid-1960s. Men such as John Kane, Davy Knight and John Gillen, who joined him in the leadership of the AAU branch and then in the Joint Occupation Committee that led the 1987 dispute. By 1987 then, these men were veterans of large factory meetings and of organising industrial disputes at plant level. They often did so by avoiding recourse to full-time union officials, who they felt were too close to management. Nine years before, during 1978, police dogs and horses had been deployed as a dispute over wages led to manual workers in donkey jackets clashing with police, whilst office workers wearing suits attempted to cross the picket line. In 1987, Caterpillar workers were fighting not for improved paying conditions, but simply to keep their jobs and keep their factory open. They were instilled to do so by mass unemployment that followed the closures of coal mining, steel making, shipbuilding and electronics and engineering factories nearby. Senior union activists such as John Gillen and John Brannan were typically in their late 30s and early 40s in 1987. They expected to work for another two decades. Younger men such as Bill McCain and Mitt Ward were still in their 20s. Bill had already experienced being laid off in the first major redundancies of the factory during 1982, which he explained in an interview in 2017 encouraged him to fight for his job 30 years previously in 1987. The occupiers received extensive support from other trade unionists in Scotland. These included miners who explicitly reciprocated financial support the Caterpillar workers had shown them just two and three years before. John Slavin recalled that as a young Labour Party activist, he'd regularly collected generous donations from the Caterpillar workforce outside the factory gates in 1984 and 85. In 1987, large rallies were held in support of the occupiers in Glasgow and Uddingston under the auspices of the Scottish Trade Union Congress. The presence of this Union Confederation underlines the Scottish national as well as class interest at stake in the occupation. British Labour movement support was demonstrated when Neil Kinnock, the leader of the British Labour Party, visited the plant and explained that if a Labour government were elected in the 1987 general election, then it would take steps that would enable the factory to remain open as an independent supplier to Caterpillar. These hopes were dashed following Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Party winning a resounding victory across the UK at the 1987 general election, 
despite her party suffering significant setbacks in Scotland. Less support came from other Caterpillar workers in the UK, however. Belgian and French trade unionists agreed to refuse to complete work relocated to Caterpillar factories from Scotland. Yet workers at Tannockside's sister plant in Leicester and the English Midlands did not offer to do the same. For John Brannan, this exposed the limits of class solidarity in 1980s Britain. We couldn't get a guy to Leicester, he said to us. One a different breed of person, Leicester. And two, maybe the guys were fighting doing their job. Mm-hmm. But they wouldn't even listen. They didn't want me to come. Don't tell me to come down here, you know. They wouldn't want to talk to him. So Frank Kelly and I think John Cain and Bush here went to Leicester and spoke to And again, they didn't tell them they were really kind of support. How can he take any action to tell you? No, they didn't even put say, we're not going to touch him. Both John Brandon and John Gillen also expressed disappointment with Scottish members of plant management for their willingness to collaborate with the closure and their lack of creativity in securing a future for the factory. John Gillen referred to the phenomenon of tannic side yanks, salaried employees who use company jargon and adapted to the expectations of American employers. They even dressed in brogues and crinkled trousers. Initially, the EU had been joined by smaller union branches who represented tradesmen and non-manual workers. But they both later pulled out of the dispute, with those workers who switched from supporting to opposing the occupation being described in the derogatory term, crumbly. The occupation ended in April 1987 after an agreement was brokered between Caterpillar, the EU and the SDUC. This followed the breakdown in relations between the occupiers and EU officials, which came about after Caterpillar took legal action against the occupation and were awarded an interim interdict against the occupiers in March. This interdict was the result of legislation that was passed by the Thatcher government to strengthen protection for private property against industrial action. It followed earlier legal challenges against Scottish occupations during the decade failing. The EU subsequently withdrew support for the occupation, no doubt influenced by the legal sequestration of National Union of Mine Workers funds after a court judgment in 1984 found the miners' strike was illegal in England and Wales. These experiences were formative for the memory of the 369 occupiers who were a narrow majority of the EU branch membership when they supported industrial action at a divisive meeting following the issuing of the interdict. They became members of the so-called 369 Club, who were issued with commemorative pins that many of them then wore to Holyrood in other events which marked the occupation's 30th anniversary. Bill McCabe recalled the end of the occupation and his own willingness to break the law in emotive terms. I always thought if it came to the, the point where we, did, we voted to break the law, that's what we done. We voted, we had interim interdicts, everyone is yes. asking them to leave the premises of the property within the own more occupying. And we'll go to the court of session in Edinburgh and charges with it all. So I, I knew when that happened that it'd be very unlikely that a, a formal trade union would, would support us breaking the law. But I was still disappointed mm-hmm. because some of the best. The farmers have came out of 
people bring them up. Yeah. Because there was an ass, as we know, and you know, and if you didn't break the laws, a lot of man, how would you, where would you be? You know? So you think there was a just case to break the law? Oh, definitely. I voted to break the law. I voted to continue with the occupation and whatever comes, comes. Take us to jail. Put it, I was happy to do that. Why did you think there was a particular case in this instance to do that? Because of the injustice. The injustice of the decision, the treatment of the workforce, the disregard for people's futures, for their present, for their future, for their families, for their communities. If, if you don't think that's a good reason to break the law, then we'll never find one. Bill's pride in what he understood as the justified collective stance that the occupiers took in the face of threats from a distant multinational and a hostile UK government are central to how the Caterpillar Workers' Legacy Group have commemorated the occupation. The Hollywood debate was a fitting tribute to the Scottish national significance of the Caterpillar occupation and the role it played in contributing to the electoral isolation of the Conservative Party in Scotland. At the 1987 election, the Tories slumped to 24% of the popular vote and down to 10 MPs from 21. This election took place in the immediate aftermath of the occupation and before the factory closed later in 1987. The experience of the occupation, though, also contributed to the sense that British working class politics was fracturing. On a smaller scale, it repeated the experience of the 1984-5 minor strike. The Scottish workers once again found their industrial actions being undermined when their colleagues in the English Midlands refused to support them. These experienced encouraged faith in Scottish rather than British political orientations. In the context of 2017, when I recorded most of the interviews with the former occupiers, a sense of growing political distance between Scotland and England further reinforced that perspective. The interviews took place after the 2014 referendum on Scottish independence and after the Labour Party lost almost all of its seats to the SNP at the 2015 general election. The result of that election also replicated in 1987 by resulting in another majority Conservative government on the back of English votes. Another logic though competed with this outlook, and this centres on the importance of workplace activism and its potential to win big and small demands. In the view of the occupiers, this remains essential for the future. Ewan and Valerie's stories both suggest that amongst Scottish workers, tensions between class and regional loyalties long predated Brexit and the independence referendum they were palpable throughout the second half of the 20th century, simmering beneath the surface of industrial disputes. But they weren't particularly cut and dried either. Throughout the late 20th century, there were notable moments of class solidarity across Britain, a sense of affiliation that transcended region and other vectors of identity too. Those instances of affinity and solidarity were what the human geographer Dermot Kelleher set out to explore. For much of the past decade, he's been researching the relationship between people in London and workers in the British coal fields. His research focused in particular on solidarity movements during the miners' strike of 1984-85. In 2017, he interviewed veterans of the struggle, striking miners and their supporters, about what stood out for them about their experience. 
He reflects now on what he learned from those interviews about the dynamics of building political alliances, what makes solidarity possible, what gets in the way of it, and what allows people to transcend their differences. A few months into the 1984-5 miners' strike, Islington Town Hall in North London was packed with several hundred people attending a support rally. On a platform decorated with coal or doll posters, speakers included the National Union of Mine Workers President Arthur Scargill, Islington North MP Jeremy Corbyn, and Terry Conway. Terry lived in London but was originally from the northeast of England. She was active with the Islington Miners Support Committee, which drew together activists from across the spectrum of left and trade union organisations in the borough. Reflecting her involvement in the gay and women's liberation movements since the early 1970s, Conway also had links with lesbians and gays to support the miners. She was on this platform, however, because she was a shop steward for low-paid workers employed by Islington Council and Children's Day Centres. They were in the middle of a significant strike themselves and had already drawn links with the miners through several joint benefits. Terry received a standing ovation before she opened her mouth, purely because she was on strike. She recalled it as one of the most extraordinary political moments of her life describing the hall as saturated with an enormous sense of solidarity. For the last decade, I've been researching the relationships between London and the British coalfield, particularly during the 1984-5 strike. In 2017, I spoke to Terry and a number of other people, both striking miners and their supporters, about their experiences of that year. Even in brief outline, Terry's story, melding the politics of class, gender and sexuality, encompassing mutual solidarities between London and the coalfields, encapsulates much that I find compelling about this history. I have no direct personal connection to this story, but as someone from the northeast of England who then lived in London and was active on the left, the attempt to build practical relationships of solidarity between these parts of the country resonated with me. This was particularly the case in the political context of the last few years where both the vote to leave the EU and the 2019 general election victory for the Conservatives were often portrayed as votes of an authentic working class based in areas like the northeast of England against metropolitan cities like London. This makes it important, I think, to understand whether and how solidarity between people in such places is possible. When the miners struck in March 1984 to defend their jobs against plans for widespread pit closures, a large and diverse support movement developed across Britain and internationally. It raised food, money, and other essentials for the coalfield communities, held demonstrations, meetings, street stalls, and fundraising events, organized visits to and from mining areas. Supporters joined picket lines and in some cases took sympathetic industrial action. Much of this activity was informal and is difficult to quantify. Within London, there were minor support groups for almost every borough of the city and many others including some basic workplaces, as well as autonomously organized black feminist and LGBT groups. London wasn't necessarily the most important source of solidarity for the miners, but it's interesting to focus on particularly because of the diverse range of support activity and because it was often considered the antithesis of the coal fields. Mike Jackson, Secretary of Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners, was one of those heavily involved in supporting the strike. He recalled what London was like that year. The miners had to put the coal out for donations, for cash, for food and, and clothes. And London, I remember at the time, th realising what a honeypot it was for the miners. 
you know, people tend to forget that there's lots of people who live in London who are not actually originally from London. Um, so, like myself from Lancashire, uh, and you know, there's a lot of people who live in, in London who originate from kind of industrial regions of the north, Scotland, uh, and Wales. And it was an amazing year, really, kind of listening to the kind of regional accents on street corners, uh, in, in marketplaces, tube stations, you know, and all those slogans that are deeply kind of ingrained into us, dig deep for the miners, support the miners. As Jackson suggests, in many cases, it was people from coalfield backgrounds living in London that helped make the links during the 1984-5 strike. Conceptions of the geography of class in Britain are often too static to understand this kind of relationship. Oral history testimony is important for accessing these small-scale stories, for understanding how personal biographies fed into the wider solidarity movement. But oral history interviews are also shaped by the period in which they take place. Like my own impulse in telling this story, Mike was resisting the simplistic ideas of class and region that dominated political debates at the time we spoke. Of course, that didn't mean that the structure of class or its trade union and political manifestation was the same throughout Britain. Recalling the Islington support rally organized by a print workers trade union, Terry Conway reflected on differences between London and other major cities in England and Scotland. There was a massive sentiment, even in areas like London, which don't have a history of not only not of mining, but of, of well, I mean, I suppose, I mean, that's why I guess the printer, that, that printer's rally was kind of a bit symbolic, because that was probably the sort of, other than the dockers, the most organised bit of the working class in London. Um, but it's not the same as, you know, Sheffield or the North East or Glasgow or whatever, it's, it, you know, the city isn't organised around those things in the same way. The Fleet Street printers Terry referenced were among the most obvious analogues of the miners in London, predominantly male, well-unionised, manual working class. I spoke to two print workers very active in the miners' support movement, who again reflected on points of connection and difference. I, mean, I had a, a miner actually say, say to me, you, you people from London, you see, we can't understand it because we've always thought you're a bunch of spivs and crooks. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right, yeah, yeah. And I thought, like, no, I said, no, we're just working people like you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, my old mum, when she moved from Highbury down to near where I live, just before she died, we moved all her stuff out. And she still had in her cupboard a bucket with coal not dull on it. Yeah. Where she'd had different people from the mining communities that stayed with her while they were down there collecting their money. She was she was dying on my money. <laughs> Amazing lady. Yeah. But Brian's dead, you know. Trade unionist through and through. If you'd have cut him in half, mm -hmm. you'd have seen it like a stick of rock. There were significant traditions of trade unionism and working class organisation in London that people drew on to understand the miners' strike. Ian Fitzgerald, who worked in the Greater London Council at the time, similarly recalled how his family history shaped his support for the miners. 
it fitted in exactly with how I viewed the world. And my trade unionism and my politics comes from my grandmother being a single parent in the 1920s, bringing up two kids, a husband dying because she couldn't afford the shilling or whatever it was for oxygen for him, and her sort of being born into poverty, or her living in poverty, a mile and a half away from the city of London, or two miles, one of the richest places on earth. That's where my politics comes from. You know, and, and sort of, do you understand me? And my yeah. trade unionism comes from my mother, who fought for women's equal rights. So, in a sense, the, the, the miners' strike and what was going on there just fitted with how I saw the world. The stark inequalities within London that Ian highlights are crucial. Another miners' supporter, Joan Twelves, later in the 1980s would become leader of Lambeth Council, remembers the differences she noticed on visiting the coalfields. In part, it was the feeling that working class people were more cut off within London. It was interesting going to, to visits rather than when you went on picket lines and things, because that's not much difference wherever it is, apart from being rather cold around power stations. <laughs> um, but I think, as I said, a lot of things don't happen in London that do happen in smaller villages and towns, like working men's clubs. Yeah. Very different. Um, whereas here, you just kind of, do I like that pub or not? And, you know, yeah. it's not the same thing at all. So you've got a much closer community. Um, but that applies to the working... As you've noticed, I live on a council estate. <laughs> different yeah. thing altogether. Um, I'm chair of the Tenants Association. Different community attitude and working together than you get on street properties in London. Yeah. So yes, you've got communities on estates, but they tend to be very separate to the rest of yeah. Londoners. And, you know, I mean, I, we, oh, those of us who live here always have this joke about Labour Party canvases. Oh, you went on an estate, how did you find it? <laughs> what did miners visiting London think of it? Brian Lawton was a striking miner from Nottinghamshire he spent a lot of time in London during the year organising support and subsequently moved to the city. When he says here in the discussion, Brian is referring to London where we spoke in a noisy venue. In Mansfield, everybody had houses. Here they didn't. They were homelessness. And so they're all that. All the, you know, all this stuff which, which was bought, which you read about, but you actually saw it. Yeah, so that, you know, and that had an impact. That had an impact on people. And deprivation. We had deprivation at Strap, but I saw deprivation down here, which I've not seen like that before, ever. So that all came about. But the, I suppose the, the biggest thing was, and this, we we're working class. We were absolutely fucking working. There were no, yeah, I mean, lots of people say, no, you're real now, middle class. But we was bloody working class. And we was coming across, we was actually, you know, people, like this, a very, you know, sort of like socialisation thing. Well, you know, do you want to come out and have a meal? We thought, fuck off now, I'd rather come get pissed, type And so you'd have to sit there and have, have this meal with people and think, we don't do this. Brian's recollections suggest a complex mixture of experiences, jarring moments of cultural differences shaped by class, but also extremities of poverty in 1980s London that were visible in a way that they were in Mansfield. 
He went on to reflect on the novel encounters of that year in other ways. So people come down here for the first time in their lives, you'll see black people. They'll see black people who they never know, they never speak to, they didn't know them. And at first it was like an effort from both. And then eventually, people just accept and they thought that, and with, with, with Ireland as well, you know, that people just said, well, your struggles are our struggle, you have problems with police, we have problems with police. Uh, so we, that's our common denominator. So there were lots of, almost immediately, all these things were broken down. Uh, you know, I've known people who were homophobic as fuck, and they come down here with a, a they stopping at gay people's houses. You know what I mean? Drinking out of their cups of tea, and at that time you had all these age shit. You know what I mean? So that was another wonderful thing what came out of the start, and I think that that has continued. The diverse population mobilised in London through the minor solidarity movement was not all working class, but some of it was. Narendra Mukherjee, a Labour Party councillor in Haringey, North London, described one place in which the miners received support. Eastfield was the general secretary for the NUM. When he was doing a speaking tour around London, I drove him around. And one of the places we went to was uh, a temple in, in Southall. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a temple in Southall, but on a Sunday morning there's a thousand people there. And every one of them working class, but also quite well attuned to what was going on and uh, and he'd give a speech and the collection that at the end of yeah. it would, would, would come up exactly. with huge sums of money. Black, I think minority and migrant working class communities in London has long been crucial in the political cultures of the capital. These accounts challenge the dominant whiteness of the working class that were often evident in debates around the EU referendum. The strike was ultimately unsuccessful. The miners returned to work after a year with no concessions on pit closures. The industry was rapidly run down over the next decade. The support movement had helped sustain the strike for an extraordinary 12 months in the face of an overwhelming mobilization of state forces, but could not help it win. The solidarity relationships forged in 1984-5 did have an afterlife. From the coalfield men and women that joined picket lines of striking print workers at Wapping, to the support the NUM gave for LGBT equality within the trade union movement and the Labour Party, solidarity was understood as a mutual relationship. Nevertheless, this was undeniably a period of defeat for trade unions and the left more generally that unraveled many of the relationships that sustained the Labour movement for decades. The support campaign has been unevenly remembered, largely a sideshow to the personalised battle between Scargill and Thatcher and dominant narratives of the period. But the release and the success of the film Pride in 2014, which dramatized the history of lesbians and gays support the minors, brought a new attention to this history. The film, of course, has its own limitations, but it resonated with many people as an inspiring story of solidarity across difference, and one that challenged narrow perceptions of both Coalfield and metropolitan LGBT communities. This is fundamental to understanding the problem with how working class places are discussed in political debate today. It often relies on a simplistic version of both the North and South, small towns and big cities. It's the assumed social homogeneity of ex-mining villages and towns in Northern England that allows them to stand in for ordinary working class people. Conversely, it's London's relatively large black population, its prominent LGBT community and so on, that disqualifies it from this role. There's a further assumption here that such places as the ex-coal fields in London have an inherently antagonistic relationship. 
These oral histories of people involved in the mining strike don't, of course, suggest that there are no differences, nor am I saying that geographical inequalities are not central to understanding Britain. But this history of London and the miners' strike can help complicate notions of where the working class is, and therefore who the working class is. It also suggests that there's an alternative history to be told about class, politics, and geography that shows solidarity between North and South, built by ordinary and diverse working class people. And now, by the miracle of Zoom, I'm joined by Valerie Wright, Ewan Gibbs, and Dermot Kelleher. I began by asking how they arrived at this topic to start with, how they decided that region and place needed to form part of the process of rethinking the tropes of ordinary British working class life. I think it was partly, well, I think partly from a, a Scottish perspective, the centrality of um, particularly nation to, to this discussion and that often risks getting missed out. And I, and I think, I mean, the others might be able to say a bit more about that, but I think bringing that perspective is really important. And I think a lot of that perspective was missed from the kind of Brexit debate and then the kind of the, the way in which class politics was thought in, in the debates afterwards that a lot of podcasts are, are kind of discussing. So, so that was a kind of central thought that we need to bring in questions of, of national identity or, you know, how nation shapes class. But I think for me as well, Geography was, I mean, I'm a geographer, right? So I guess um, I was always saying, oh, geography is really important. But I think it was really important to how class was has been discussed through Brexit and after Brexit, particularly for me in the way in which, you know, working class people were seen to be located in a particular kind of place. Often Northern English, maybe Midlands English, usually outside big cities, or at least, you know, at least outside what we would kind of think of relatively prosperous cities, because I was thinking, you know, Sunderland is the kind of classic example of places, a place where people went a lot during Brexit and afterwards to talk to people. So, but so there were so there cities, but they were often cities that were considered, you know, less prosperous, or it was kind of towns or, you know, that sort of stuff. So there was a whole, I think, geographical, to use a slightly pompous term, but geographical imaginary to how um, class was kind of understood in these debates. So for me, it was really important, I guess, to discuss that and, and think what that means about how we understand class politics and how we understand class history. And, and hopefully thinking about some of these kind of questions of, of labour history and, and class history um, informs that discussion in a useful way. Mm -hmm. oh, definitely. I think it's about complicating those narratives as well, and those stereotypes about place and like, you know, everybody in this in this area of the nation votes this way or that. And like just like you said, that sort of stereotypical notion of Sunderland and you know, the, the media decamping to particular areas to get a particular view. And I mean it's just not the case. Um, and we all have sort of these sorts of maybe embedded notions in our head of of how places or what places are like. If you think of Newcastle or you think of London or you think of like Swansea, you've an idea of what that place might be like. And I think it was our purpose was like, let's complicate that a little bit. Let's, you know, make sure that, that the narratives around working class people can't be instrumentalised by sort of top down politics. Like, let's get out there and, and, and hear the stories of individual working class people in groups and uh, you know, sort of working class activist organisations rather than, than thinking of these top down terms. Um, I think that's what it's all about for me is like, let's hear people's stories. Let's complicate those cliched stereotypes. I think for me, there was a, a dimension of um, 
trying to consider the long-term role of territorial politics in, in, in British experiences of class, as well as in thinking about class. And that was partly triggered by the sense that often representations of the declining working class support for the Labour Party, or supposed declining working class support for the Labour Party, have, have rested on an image of there being a period where almost everybody in Britain who worked in a factory or a coal mine or a shipyard uh, voted Labour and identified with the British working class as an unproblematic formulation. And, you know, in a Scottish context, there's been an independent Scottish Trade Union Federation, Scottish Trade Union Congress since the late 19th century. And class politics have been territorially coded in Scotland, Wales, and regions of England for, for their entire experience over the 20th century, including when the labour movement and ideas of the British working class were arguably at their strongest. So I thought it was important in this podcast to, to think about that and understand that the sort of territorial pressures and conflicts that we've seen in recent years are not completely exceptional and actually fit into a longer pattern of working class experiences. Yeah, I'm really glad you raised that because it was one of the questions that I had in my mind that I hadn't really been able to, to put together because you talk at the end of your piece about the, the long term, the long story, the longer roots, the deeper roots, whatever. Um, chronologically and I wondered you know the story that you're telling about the nuances and tensions and complexities of identity you know where what are the big turning points in that story and how far back do you do you need to go to really understand what's happening now since the stories that that we hear in the podcast are sort of 1970s onwards I don't know. I mean, I think that Ewan's just sort of summarised it quite well. You know, we've had the STUC in Scotland since the late 19th century. And even, you know, when I was, my, my PhD was on the interwar years and there was very much a Scottish identity among left-wing women's organisations as well as there was a British identity. It's, it's intention and in flux, I think, continuously. I mean, a big point is obviously 1926 general strike and the difference of responses through the nation and that geography and place is very important there. Um, around different industries and, and, and how people respond to it in everyday life um, and even how that's sort of reported in a Scottish context. I think those tensions have been there. I mean, you and what, I mean, that your same impression that I think those tensions between sort of place, like region, nation, and then that sort of idea of a British working class, this unified British working class, I don't think there ever has been one really, to be honest. I don't know. I think that in terms of our podcast, what we look at is the period where the traditional industrial economy starts to contract, which is really in the middle of the 20th century, so yeah. from the 1950s. I agree with what Valerie said, and it's very important to be aware of those nesting of class identities and locality and region. But I think you could probably argue that, you know, if we think of the early 1950s as Eric Holmesbaum would call it the peak point of the forward march of labour. There arguably is something like a relatively unified, organised British working class at that point. And that is the point where employment in traditional industries peaks, I think, notably. And that's when 
in the aftermath of that is shipbuilding, coal mining, textiles, employment in those areas starts to decline. You have a much more active UK government regional policy, which is enacted in particular by Labour governments in the 60s and the 70s. And that's part of the context, I think, of the distinctions between workers in different parts of Scotland and England that Valerie and myself have looked at, for instance, and it's maybe that long experience of forms of deindustrialization, which is an important context for understanding, you know, our, our current situation in those terms. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I think it, is, it all kind of hinges in regional policy, which comes out of the interwar years and that this responsible have no hungry 30s again. You know, we'll move industry out of the southeast, we'll have diversification, we'll have new industry. You just think of the movement of thousands of people from what you might think of as traditional working class communities, which is a problematic term in itself, but from two up, two downs in the, in the north of England are tenements in Glasgow and you're moving them out to new housing estates and the recreation of community and what survives from traditional working class identities in these new places and these new workplaces and that's something I think you know, I'm very interested in, you know, in terms of intergenerational class transmission. What, what survives relocation and, and what doesn't? But at the heart of it is that regional policy and that the decisions that are taken at Westminster in the Scottish office, you know, in Edinburgh, of where are these new factories going? Where are we moving people? You know, what, what's their objective in doing that? Which has longer roots again, but yeah, as a response to the closure or the anticipated uh, rundown of traditional industries, which in, in some instances, you know, weren't seen in the numbers that were predicted. So it's like they, they, they had their idea of what was going to happen. And I think we're at a a pivotal moment in the sense that our economy is changing yet again with the decline of retail and everything. We're at a turning point again, and we know what these planners and policy makers and, and government officials were doing in the 60s, you know, when they seen that change coming from the 1950s onward, actually, a wee bit earlier, and they had to make decisions about how is the world changing? What can we anticipate? What can we plan for? What can we not? Some of the decisions they made, we can criticise with the benefit of hindsight, but, you know, they were they were trying to, to sort of respond to these huge sort of global economic forces. I think we're there again. So there's definitely less lessons to be learned from studying this history um, in terms of, you know, how, how do planners do it? <laughs> how do these, you know, economic forecasters and, and how can you anticipate change? What are we planning for at the moment? What kind of changes are we wanting to see? Um, and I mean, Brexit and, and even you know, the independence movement is in the context of this massive sort of change, which, you know, Ewan's work at the moment on, on energy policy and, and energy kind of is, is right at the, the forefront of that. Is what kind of world are we planning for and what kind of world do we want to see? And history has a role there. So I think what we are looking at in this podcast in terms of changing working class identities and looking at the reality of how people were thinking about politics, how they were thinking about class identity, how they were relating to their workplace and communities, kind of gives us something to work with going forward, I think. I don't know. <laughs> it's like lessons from history to try and see where we've, where we've come from, where we might be going, how, how we can understand that change. You know, it seems at the moment people are so divided. So I guess what we're saying is they kind of always been divided, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And there's, there's ways to mitigate against that, you know? Yeah. 
I mean, I think focusing on like market focuses on minus strike at 84, 85, and there's a risk of by doing that, you kind of a slightly simplistic idea about when the industrialization happened or, you know, that, that everything, you know, the North-South divide was created in, in 1985 or so on. And obviously that's not true. And there's, you know, a really a much longer history of it that's really important. Nevertheless, I think one of the reasons for focusing on that strike is it's a kind of iconic moment in that process, I think. And, and obviously in the 1980s, you do get an, a kind of an acceleration of the industrialization and an acceleration of the kind of concentration of wealth in London and the Southeast and an exacerbation of those kind of longer term geographical inequalities. So that's one reason to talk about it. But I guess that I don't know how successful it is, but part of the point of that, of, of my bit of the podcast and, and the kind of research around it is to say, but there, there are also the kind of, there are the, the really, really important inequalities and the ways in which that shapes identities and, and so on. But there are also kind of alternative stories about solidarities that do sometimes kind of bridge those geographical divides and that, yeah. and that hopefully it's useful to tell those stories. Yeah, Impor- it's so important, isn't it? Because you sort of say, yeah, like, so, you know, if you look at the case study, you know, it's, it's again, essentially my dad's tension of like, you know, who do you support here? Do you, you know, when, when the yard is, you know, and we're going to get these boats for our, for, for Govan and you know, that's going, well, what about the guys in Sunderland? And some of them are saying, well, it's more about us. It's more about our yard. And admittedly, their yard had been under threat just a few years earlier. So it's these sorts of decisions we make. But it's exactly what you say, as much as you can look for division and go, here's the point at which things you know, we say folk were always divided around regional or place or, or, or territorial identities. They were also united. So, you know, as as you said, there, there was that sense of like <laughs> trade unions in Scotland might have complained about having to go down to the national meetings in England and all, you know, they don't know what they're doing and we'll tell them how it's done. That's a story I heard across <laughs> all sorts of industries. But at the same time, they still went to those meetings. And they still made friends from other places and colleagues and comrades from around the like around the UK, and they all had stories to tell about. You know, he was a good guy, or oh, he used to go and see this guy. You know, so as much as there's tensions, there are those solidarities, and it's so important to just tell these sort of nuanced stories, which aren't like simplistic, like we've seen around Brexit. You know, yes, voters, no voters, and the same in, in, in the context of Scottish independence, those tensions and people falling out with each other, as well as that, there's folk having discussions, there's people sitting in, in pubs and in, in each other's homes, like thrashing out their ideas and, 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 you know, coming up with opinions about what's best for the future of our country, you know, whether it's Scotland, whether it's the UK, whether, you know, whether it's Britain. So it's got, you know, people are talking. And I think what worries me now is that in the context, you know, post-COVID, folk aren't really, you don't get the same sense of there being these big political debates. I think we're all just a bit fed up, to be honest, and disengaged. So it's like, you know, we have to engage again with those discussions. I mean, no matter what side you were on in 2014, it was such a vibrant time in Scotland around that independence referendum. And there was a real role for us as historians to feed into those discussions and those debates. And we might be doing it again, we'll see. But like these content, you know, the, the, the issues that we are discussing in this podcast are live and speak to debates that, that people are having today. Um, so you know, I'm hoping that people that listen to that to this are thinking, well, Brexit's not just something that happened in 2016. It's got these consequences that we're all living with now that we still need to be thinking about. About who are we? How why do people think the way they do? You know, um, 
why are people voting a certain way? Why is there support for these sorts of policies and, and so on and so forth? You know, it's our job as historians to try and, you know, find parallels and, and, and offer lessons from the past. I know that's really cheesy, but I think that's that's kind of what we are here for, is to think, like, we've been here before, and here's how that ended, <laughs> and here's what that's fed into, and here's where we can perhaps intervene. Um, so yeah, so as, as much as Brexit and, and you know, NDF 2014 was a historical moment, we're still living with the consequences of it. Arguably, we're still living with the consequences of industrial, you know, economic policy for the 1950s and 60s. So it's like, we need to understand that. I mean, I was thinking sort of two different things in response to what you both said. The first is that it's quite important, as Valerie was saying, I think that we don't accept current forms of territorial political polarizations as permanent states of affairs. And it was actually quite easy to be Scottish and British for most of the 20th century. And most trade unionists and Labour Party activists or Labour movement affiliated, Communist Party affiliated activists would have said the same, would have felt like that. And were quite happy articulating what were often quite distinctly Scottish national visions of a sense of Scottish national interest behind them within a broader UK framework. And mm-hmm. if you look at the results of elections in industrial areas for most of the 20th century, certainly from the 1920s to the 1990s, that they would indicate that that was a viewpoint that large sections of their constituents broadly held and supported as well. So I think it's important we understand that, yeah, those tensions always existed, but people actually often find quite pragmatic ways to negotiate them and to hold them together politically over the long run and also in relation to particular instances of campaigns or or solidarity. But I guess the other thing I would say is this series is called Ordinary Workers, but we're also studying some quite exceptional groups of workers at exceptional (laughs) moments here, I don't apologise for that. I think that industrial conflicts are useful and important ways to understand the fissures of a particular society at a particular point in time. And there are also moments where I think participants articulate their views of the world, which have been built up over the years or decades of, of working class experience, but are probably quite rarely openly stated in some ways. Their expectations of their employers, their trade unions, their fellow workers in their own workplace and, and across the country come out in, in those disputes. But it is worth making that point that most workers in Britain didn't occupy the factory when they faced yeah. closure. Most industries didn't go through a year-long strike and expect and to some extent receive solidarity from across the country. In that sense, maybe Valerie's story of a reluctant but nevertheless, you know, accepted form of, of compromise that perhaps impinged on class solidarities, I think is an important tonic, maybe, to the stories that myself and Beamid are exploring. Well, it was such an interesting one, just that, you know, as, as my dad says when I'm, when I'm talking to him about it, it was such an interesting, you know, because it just popped up, it's something that came into his head and he just went, you know, I'll tell you that, like he forgot that this had happened. And of course he misremembered some of the details, which is, is quite interesting, but it was the main point, which was, I felt for those guys in Sunderland, you know, the Swan Hunter, you know, like that idea of like, I can imagine those men just being guys like me and we're taking those boats, 
and that's going to affect that yard. And he felt, but it was like the way he described the union meeting when I was like recording the podcast, I kind of forgot that when he said, they used to just like show a hand then motion carried. But with this one, they had to like split the hall and get them to stand and count because it was so close as to whether, should we take these boats from that yard or not? And for some folk, it was like, it's work for us, we'll take it. And some for some folk, it was like, but what about those guys? What about those guys down there in their yard? And I think that would be the same now. I mean, it's the same sort of tension that you see we've seen about Indiref. And that's why I made that parallel where my dad was like, you know, very a yes voter, but a slightly reluctant yes voter because he was like, but what about what about all those folk in England that we'd be leaving them behind, essentially? That was his take on it. We want better for us, but would we be what about all of the working, you know, and as I say, I was raised to to believe that we had more in common as a family with other families like us elsewhere in the UK than we did with what my dad would describe as the ruling classes in Scotland, you know, um, and it, it's true. So like, I think there is that lesson of like, we have it more in common with, uh, you know, the working classes elsewhere, and not just within the UK, but globally, you know, why are we all so divided among ourselves? You know, and I think that's the lessons that come really well from, from Dermot's case study, the minor strike is where people do realise we don't need to be divided among ourselves. You know, we've got more in common. I might live in London. You might live in Wales. Or, you know, you might live in, in the North. But, you know, when we get down and sit around a table and have a chat about our lives, you know, our lives are not that different. And there's there's more in common here. And again, it's a real cliche, but... <laughs> I was going to pick up on something you said earlier, Val, about going down to the union meetings in London and to, to talk to other people. And I think, you know, there's obviously a real risk of collapsing working class history into trade union history and and you know those things are not are not the same but I was thinking that another thing about the kind of periods that we're talking about is the collapse of the labor movement in a lot of ways you know the, the kind of peak in terms of numbers at the end of the 70s the start of the 80s and then the, you know really dramatic kind of collapse and that I think is really is really important and thinking about how the, the role of the trade union movement played in the formation of of place-based or national identities or regional identities or so on in, in quite complex ways I think obviously like you think about if we're talking about the the coal industry which again is exceptional in some ways but it's also really important a lot of people were in the coal industry it's, it's not a kind of minority um sport or it is a minority sport but it's a big minority in, in, in Britain. <laughs> very locally rooted kind of institutions that were built with and through the trade union movement alongside the trade union movement that kind of created really strong local place-based identities for better and worse but also then those particularly I think national trade union and, and different kinds of national trade union organizations that did pe- bring people into contact with with other people whether on an occupational basis or less frequently on a, on a kind of wider through STUC or TUC or whatever on a, on a kind of wider wider basis and that I think is was really important is really important and I think the, the kind of collapse of that infrastructure, plays a really important role in undermining that broader sense of, of class identity and connection and so on. And, and, and obviously, as I guess you know, to emphasise again, obviously it was a relatively small number of people who were going down to London to have yeah. these meetings or, or whatever. But I, but I still think it was those people then went back to, to where they lived and talked to people. These, these processes were really important. And I think the kind of, you know, it obviously hasn't completely disappeared, but in significant ways that the, the diminishing of that since the, since the 1980s in particular has been very important. 
I think that's, that's totally right. If you think about what other sort of established organisational structure would take people on buses down somewhere else and, and solidarity strikes. I remember speaking to someone at Linwood, a bus of them went down to Grunswick when there was the strike there, you know, and they got to meet lots of different people. It's harder to believe the stereotypical notion of what people like from, from Birmingham are like or what people from Coventry are like. If you've been down there and met folk like you and you've thought, oh, they're just, they've got the same, you know, day-to-day struggles as, as we do as a family, it's harder. You know that yourself, you know, you can't, you can't stereotype people in the same way if you actually know, <laughs> if you know people of that organised group or whatever. So I think that that's so important, that idea of, you know, the breakdown of those sorts of structures where folk did get to learn and travel and get to know people of, of, of sort of from different areas of the country. We don't have that in the same way, in the same numbers. I mean, of course, in the 60s and 70s, folk, I mean, I'm speaking for Scotland here, but people left Scotland to go and work elsewhere in Britain. So you had people visiting each other and, and all that kind of thing. You know, people would have, maybe that's in some ways still the case, but like, you know, those sort of diaspora networks too. But yeah, the trade union movement really provided that that basis for, for discussion. And yes, there'd have been tensions and people who didn't get on with each other, all of that kind of stuff. But yeah, you'd have, you'd have got to see a bit of the country and get to meet people from different from different places. I think there was a lot of learning done within coal mining. I'm thinking of sort of Linwood and in Fairfield, you know, and, and the folk that got away to and, and people who'd come up. Nationalisation is a huge thing as well within shipbuilding. Remember quite a lot of the guys told me that workers would come up from yards from elsewhere and they're like, we never got to, we never got to go down there. They never ever sent us anywhere. But they'd have people coming up from like Devon, or you get folk coming up from like Sunderland. And no, I was quite good taking, they had good fun taking them out to the pub and all that kind of stuff, you know. So just in a social sense as well, you know, the, these people that they'd met, you know, I don't know if we have that same, we just don't have that in the same way now. Yeah, I mean, I think it actually raises interesting questions about what British nationhood actually means like and looks like to people. And I, one way of thinking about that is that it's in the it's the decade of the First World War, but including before the First World War, where you start to get national collective bargaining organised on a really big scale, um, and where the government gets involved in that, especially in the coal industry around the miners' strike in nineteen twelve. But you see other national disputes organised in other industries, and that does create those sorts of structures that the image referring to, where workplaces around the country are genuinely feeding into and responding to developments that are, are happening on a profoundly national basis that are articulated in those terms. And that also coincides with the increasing election of, of Labour parliamentarians for, for those sorts of constituencies as well. Um, I don't think this is purely a Labour Party and trade union movement history. And I think certainly the development of municipal housing in larger and larger scales um, around that time under national legislation and then economic planning, as Valerie mentioned, after the Second World War, that includes relocations of large numbers of people, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands perhaps, cumulatively actually across the country, the building of new towns, uh, that this is what British nationhood actually looks like. And it means the building of large coal-fired and then nuclear power stations as well that really change how people work and live. And 
I think that's something that's quite important. And I wonder if one effect of deindustrialization and its acceleration in the closing decades of the 20th century is to end that form of identification and understanding of what British nation did. And I think, in, particularly under the evolution of Scotland, I think the Scottish Parliament and the Scottish Government enjoy a much higher status as a, a seen, a visible political authority in Scotland and one that actually deals with a lot of people's day-to-day concerns and yeah. lives if they have children in school or they use the health service, for instance, and they might employ them directly as well in some form or other than the UK government does. So that, that's an interesting and very important change. No, I would agree. And it, it, I mean, and that this one thing about the development, you know, devolution, it feels that you can, you if you have a complaint, you can take it to the Scottish government. It feels like as a citizen that you're closer to it in the sense, and, and most of us know folk who work there in some way or, you know, work in a related, you don't feel as distant from policymakers, I guess, in, in Scotland. Well, I don't. I mean, maybe not everybody feels like that. But that's been a huge change in Scotland, the process of devolution and, you know, how that differs from maybe our, I've seen, collective relationship with Westminster. But yeah, it's, it's interesting, especially in the, in, the, in the last couple of years, I think, to think about who are we looking to for guidance on public health and, and, and housing and, and like you say, you and things that affect everybody's day-to-day life. That political divergence has long roots, but we're, we're seeing the fruit of it now, I suppose. One thing I wanted to say was, I think it's important to think about how what we're talking about relates to some of what's going on in the other podcasts. And I think this is maybe going back a bit in the discussion, but I I think a lot of the discussion in the Brexit debate and the 2019 kind of red wall debate, which I see as essentially continuations of similar, you know, similar discussions, essentially, that the understanding of where the working class is the kind of ordinary working class places is highly racialized, highly gendered and so on. And these questions of geography and class are deeply, deeply entangled with the other questions that are raised in, in, in the other podcasts. And so, so I think, yeah, it's important not to see those as separate. And I, and I think politically that has an important effect. I mean, I think one of the kind of responses to some of, some of the Brexit debate has been to say, well, actually, these these people in Bishop Auckland or, or wherever, like, they're actually not really working class. Actually, they're homeowners and they're kind of older pensioners and, and so on. And they're kind of demographically much more like conservative areas and, and so on. And, and like there's some truth in that, but I also think it, it has real risks as well. And I think probably a, a, a better way of approaching it is saying that actually, and, and I know it's kind of classic academic things, oh, it's more complicated, it's more nuanced <laughs> than that. Um, uh, but however, it is more complex, complicated, more, you know, yeah. you know that, that actually the young multiracial working class in big cities is part of the working class. And the people in Bishop Auckland are also part of the working class. Yeah, not all of them, yeah. but that actually the working class is diverse in that sense as well and that if we want a kind of progressive class politics in this country which i i do and i hope we do it's got to be one that thinks through to my mind the relationship between those areas really kind of marginalized and scarred by the industrialization and and how we can bring that together with the class politics of places like london or or whatever
ever. And for me, that's part of the kind of politics behind that discussion of the London uh, relationship with the miners' strike is how do you how do you bring the kind of class politics in the in these uh, different areas, different places together in a way that is not necessarily prioritizing one over the other, but it's thinking about how they can kind of relate in, in solidaristic and progressive ways. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think it's, like, it's just there's a need to understand that's a multifaceted nature of what the working classes is. And I mean, it's plural. There is no one working class. We know that it's, it's segregated and, as I say, multifaceted. And, you know, place is really important in shaping those identities and voting behaviours. So, for example, there are conservative voters in Scotland among the working classes. And that's not just down to sectarianism and religion. It's about aspiration. I recently found out and talking to my dad that my great granny was like a, a conservative voter because she wanted to be a homeowner. Like she she essentially wanted, wanted everything that the middle classes had. That's not his his uh, mum. Um, that's like you know on the other side, my mum's not my mum's grand. But you know he remembers going round to see them as a family and my dad like big Catholic family in a, in a council house and you know my my mum's granddad saying. Oh well, of course, big families like yours live in council housing. You know, you know, we working class, we we are homeowners. So there's a, a sort of identity of working class people who want to own property. You know, we're kind of wanting to be more middle class, voting conservative because they see that as the, the aspirational party. That's something we don't really want. Well, I <laughs> don't want you seeing the working class, but it's part of what the working class is. It's something that's you know we need to understand that how the Conservative Party, even in its current iteration, is, what's the word, attractive to working class voters. I'm saying people like me, you know, can scorn that. Why are you, why are you for, we need to understand that in order to, to like have that more progressive politics, as you say. The approval rating for our current Prime Minister is still pretty high. Like, why? <laughs> so... Why is that? You know, so I think it, it's getting to the heart of all these questions, understanding the historical reasons behind voting behaviours and traditional voting behaviours helps us get there to think about these areas that were voting for Brexit and why they were voting for Brexit and not sneering at folk for, for their decisions or why they've decided to vote a certain way, but trying to understand it and political parties responding to that. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd made a note about, you know, the, the instrumentalisation of class identities, what we're seeing in those sort of red wall debates. Parties putting up candidates that they think will respond to the voters in that particular location. It's all very strategic. So for us as historians, it's about understanding that place, understanding where that impulse comes from, what those identities are. Two things I wanted to say. I guess the first is more for historians, although it might be useful for the current political moment. I was partly thinking about what what Dermot was saying, and I don't want to get into the class in itself, the for itself discussion, but what we've shown here is that when workers in Britain acted in a class-conscious manner in the 20th century, they did so through an understanding of territorial relationships which shaped and informed their class consciousness, and they were territorial relationships that related to British nationhood, regional identities within England, and regional identities in Scottish nationhood in a Scottish context as well. And I'm sure we could find similar deliberations in Wales and elsewhere, but I think what we're saying here then is that territory and nation are integral to class consciousness in, in, in those contexts, and not things that come at 
come from out with and kind of shroud a real pure class consciousness. I think that's very important for how we understand history, but also current political dynamics. I guess the more sort of tub-thumping, activistic thing I wanted to say was that the other thing that I thought was really interesting about all our deliberations is, is that these people felt they had power and responsibilities as workers. That actually Valerie's case is really interesting because these workers felt powerful enough that they felt they had a responsibility to, to at least discuss what happened when their workplace took these orders that some of them interpreted as strike-breaking and others interpreted as necessary to keep their yard going. But I think it's actually fascinating that discussion took place at all and that a heartfelt debate was had and a vote was had that these workers saw their workplace as a, an arena for democracy. And I think that's really, really significant. And all our cases actually demonstrate that. And that's something that I think is really actually missing from yeah. the current juncture. Like working class power is not part of these journalists going around Sunderland throwing a microphone in the face of any man to see wearing a flat cap. That seems integral to any serious understanding of, of class in, in Britain today. Many thanks to Valerie Wright, Ewan Gibbs and Dermot Kelleher and to everyone they interviewed for their research. You can find out more about them and their work and the network from which this three-part series on labour history emerged on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>